Dame Emma Kirkby is with us today. She is one of the most beloved and distinguished of British sopranos with a voice that um, I think most of us can switch on the radio, hear that absolutely shining arc of sound and know immediately that it's her. The big 70th birthday concert that Emma is having at the Wigmore Hall is on the 28th of February and is stuffed full of fabulous English and Italian repertoire um, with a very distinguished lineup of guest soloists. So, Emma, welcome to the Wigmore Hall. Thank you very much. Um, tell us, first of all, um, how do you come to be having your 70th birthday concert here? Because I was asked to. <laughs> it's, very, it's a very kind invitation from the Wigmore, which was too too wonderful to turn down. <laughs> I mean, it's quite a big deal to do something like this. Um, and you want to try and get it right. But in the end, it's just one evening. And what happens, happens. <laughs> I've, I've learned enough to know you can't assume that things are going to go exactly right. Um, you just have to enjoy whatever takes place. Yeah, so how does it actually feel to stand on that stage and sing? What, what does it mean to you to be in this space? It really is a wonderful space for singers. It's got this beautiful acoustic with a lovely top, which is what singers need, um, the, that sort of apps. Um, it's got a sweet spot in the middle, which we all know about, and it's quite good to stand in that sometimes if you need a bit of extra oomph or to make sure your loudest voice in a consort isn't standing <laughs> there. Um, so it's got that one little lovely eccentricity, which we enjoy using when we can. But otherwise, it's just a beautiful hall and every seat in the hall is a good seat, including the balcony. And that's a very special achievement, too. Um, as for this concert, I thought it was a lovely invitation, but I wanted it to be not about the past, but about the future. So though I have got um, one or two tried and tested colleagues, Charles Medlin just insisted on coming and bringing his gamba, which is lovely, Jacob Lindbergh with his lute. Um, everyone else is a little bit younger. Um, and I, I see your, your harpsichordist is the extremely dynamic Stephen Devine. I'm really delighted he's free. He's a very, very busy man, um, but also a great favourite with all of us. And he's going to join in once the dialogue starts, once the party starts, really. Um, we then get to Miriam Allen, who is uh, a wonderful Australian singer. She brought brought up in Newcastle, New South Wales, but... Um, also has British patriality and has lived here for quite a while now and she lives in Windsor um, and is a super singer and a very dedicated teacher as well and a very good family friend so we're doing some duets together so I think she's kind of halfway along the age gap and then there are um, several seriously younger people who some of them are members of my sort of club Dowland Works and two are distinct groups that I didn't start that I have essentially no um, control over at all. They, they are self-propelling, very fine young groups. One is called Chellis and they are a gamba consort and the other is a vocal consort, Fieri. And I have to say that when I put on their fairly recent CD, which was of Monteverdi and Marenzio, I thought this really reminds me of the fun we had with the consort of music. This is, it feels, it's not the same, these are different people, they have their own trajectories, but it's got that that excitement about it, and I was really thrilled to hear it. So I've asked them to come and just give us 15 minutes of absolutely solid Marenzio, which is quite gloomy, wonder, wonderfully deep and, and dissonant stuff, actually, um, late 16th century. Uh, that's going to be the beginning of the second half. Um, otherwise, the programme is a bit more bitty, 
um, it's bound to be really. The Dowland Works section is our favourite of Dowland and Daniel with a couple of lovely lute players and some of the singers that belong to this, this informal club. And then with the gambers, we're going to use them both on their own to play lovely four-part uh, gibbons and bird, but also some consort songs, which is a big favourite of mine. And then the second half is Italian, starting with Marenzio, and then Miriam and I, with Jacob Lindbergh, will do a little 20-minute sequence of duets um, by Dindia, who is Monteverdi's contemporary, and even wackier, if you like, um, wonderful, wonderful rhetorical writing, very intriguing and very satisfying and not so well known. So we're doing some of his things. Um, I'm, I'm doing a rather saucy thing because there was a composer called Antonio Cifra, who was fairly popular in his day. He wrote a lot of nice duets, which were known in England for um, complicated reasons of Henry Law's um, making a joke about it. That, that's another story. But Cifra sets a chunk of Tasso, which is Armida, and her Christian warrior has been enchanted by her for long enough, and he's going, and she is distraught and cursing him. And the Cifra setting is for two voices, and it's it's um, it's not Monteverdi, it's not Dindier, it's sort of a little bit plainer, if you like, but quite touching. But what's intriguing about it is it ends in the middle of a sentence. Armida says, and if you escape the death on the sea and get to the battlefield, and then it finishes. Chifra's book of duets, it turns out the next duet is on a completely different subject. And then the next book one continues the Tasso story. So I naughtily decided, all right, if Chifra's happy to interrupt, I will too, because Dindia himself picks up the story exactly at that point. So, and he sets it in about one and a half minutes as a restative. <laughs> so we're going to, after the duet, we're going to go straight into Miriam being Amida, continuing to curse him and falling down in a faint. And then the second half of that little bit of uh, restative is the narrator saying she couldn't speak anymore. She was just um, utterly deflated and, and came out in a cold sweat. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a very... It's a piece of Tasso I know because Monteverdi set it brilliantly in his third book. So I know all of it in that setting that we did years ago with the consort. Um, but it's just fun to see other composers playing with it. Tasso is really such inspiring stuff for them and, and for us. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that you, you've often been drawn to music that has very vivid texts and where you can really give the words every bit as much of an emphasis as the vocal line. Yes, very much so. I was always that way. And yeah, you ask my teacher, Jessica Cash, the fights we had early on because, you know, I was all in my head and not in my body at all. And she just had to try and talk me down. I was so into the words and so excited about it. But actually, if you want to get words really working and expressing things, you have to use your whole body. And you embody the text, in fact. So I would say that's what I've been doing for many decades now and, and always finding new things actually it, it's a very exciting way to go about things in this repertoire which was so built on the text that's that's how they thought of it well this amazing renaissance and baroque poetry that that they had mm -hmm. at their disposal is, yes it's yes. such a treasure trove yeah absolutely yeah. and they used they did use their whole bodies they did gestures and and everything and oh that's another thing that i've just um very 
boldly asked Dionysius Kiropoulos, who's an expert on historical movement and and drama. Um, he's he's going. It's it's going to be just a. a a brief encounter with him, but he is wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm going to let him loose on my singers doing dialogues. Uh, those are mostly in English, actually, um, and he's he's just going to share his ideas on how we might stage things and just a little bit. It's a concert, but um, I think it would be lovely to have his input. Well, some of these composers, I get the feeling that there is absolutely nothing they wouldn't stop at to wring every piece of emotion out of the, the drama that they're depicting. Yes, and I think it's partly because they could, because the forces were chamber-intimate, speech-based, and that, for me, is incredibly important, and that's where the Wigmore comes in, because it's such a brilliant chamber space as well. So you don't need vast forces, you need just a continuo, you need a couple of instruments supporting uh, most of the time and and then you really have um, a musical space which is also a dramatic space and the tiniest nuances will carry and that's extremely satisfying. And of course my absolutely favourite instrument, the lute, starts and carries on right through the evening there where there'll be lutes of one kind or another most of the time. So I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of people would be curious to know whether you would ever have considered going down a different path in terms of repertoire and the way you developed your voice. Would would you ever have been tempted by, um, say, Italian 19th century opera? No, I briefly know. Um, I mean, I'd love to see it done at the scale the composer knew. I don't like to see it blown blown up too far. Um, that goes for Wagner too. I, I discovered the other. I mean, I sh- I'm sure everyone knows this. I didn't. Wagner wanted um, leader singers, <laughs> and I um, I was very excited to meet meet a wonderful German mezzo um, who lives in Stockholm, and she sang Christmas Oratorio most beautifully, just before Christmas, and then said, oh, she was um, working on Sieglinde next and moving up towards Brunhilde, and she was quite shocked how loud some singers are with this stuff because you don't need to be. It depends, obviously, where you are. Um, if you get the right places, then I, I could get very, very interested, but not for myself, no, but for, um, for I think, the younger voices, a lot of them have to be quite versatile, and if the conditions are right, then they can be. But in the end... If you've got a, a really, really mighty setup, then you've just got to be Superman or Superwoman, really. And they are there. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> people can stand on the stage in the Met and make the most incredibly loud sound. And it's pretty amazing. And that that's not an area that will ever, would ever have been for me. But in a way, you are a kind of Superwoman. I think it, it's quite unusual for the singers to carry on um, beyond a, a certain kind of age and it's very very rare to to find someone who has had such a consistent and and magnificent career as you have and I'm, I'm wondering how have you maintained your voice how do you how do I you think it's a little more common it? with men to be honest I think there are one or two opera singers baritones um, and and indeed tenors who've lasted a, a very long time by just getting it right um, well, I think for me it, it does go back to scale. That I was always really with uh, singing with the right balance of things. I, I wasn't needing to compete beyond what I could manage. Um, and if you if you have to go beyond your speech, your loud speech level, then you've got to find another technique, which people do triumphantly. But it's not something I really 
sort to do anyway. Um, and so I'm just continuing to talk. And people can talk all their lives. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> but also, I mean, I now, I don't want to um, perform left, right and centre and take all the, the, the limelight away from other people who need it. And there are incredibly good singers, younger ones around, um, and they need chances. There are so many of them. So if I can share the platform with them, that's really good. Um, apart from that, I probably only do really very small sort of focus things that people already know me it's a small place it's just a loot duo or, so, or something and I'm an all most of the time there will be some kind of coaching alongside so I'm I think I'm when I'm performing I'm substantially sharing ideas I, I hope with all these wonderful younger singers who who are who are there oh that's wonderful uh, I think you had quite an unconventional start. Yes. <laughs> yes. Tell us about that. Well, um, I, yes, I, I, I went to a series of schools, Sailor's Daughter, and, and finally sort of a bit of continuity at boarding schools from the age of eight. And they were all fairly musical, the last two particularly, and that was very nice, but they were all about singing. Um, and if you were a singer individual lessons didn't really happen it was all about choirs and small groups and I enjoyed that very much and but I mean the last school I went to was very very good for music it just I wasn't I played the piano terribly but I, I carried on with it you were encouraged to have a go even if you were useless so that was fine but I loved the choir and mainly one of the music teachers Augusta Miller she decided to start a magical group and that was it for me I was 14 and she took us down to the boys' school, with which there was no official contact, because she discovered that the head of the boys' school was a Renaissance lover. So we stood in a circle around his sitting room, which was, although that school is in <clears throat> wonderful medieval buildings, his um, house was just a very featureless, in fact, practical bungalow, as far as I remember, or something like. And we stood in the sitting room, 12 girls one side, and random sort of... Um, trustworthy musical boys the other you know and we sang Dowland and Morley and things in four parts and we sang birds four-part mass and really that was the piece that just knocked me sideways and the idea that sort of polyphony was completely amazing to me I was studying classics I was going on to university and then I had discovered that there was a um, there was a choir at Oxford called Schola Cantorum which sang polyphony. So when I went for the interview and heard about this choir, I thought, oh, I want to get to that. <laughs> so when I arrived back there a, a year later, I um, auditioned. Didn't get in the first term, but after, I was on the waiting list. And after that, I was just in paradise. And we did everything. We did, um, oh, even Stravinsky and Charles Ives, but a lot of, of um, Tudor music because there were people around editing it. Um, John Taverner's Crown of Thorns Mass and so on. It was absolutely thrilling to be just a little bit involved in that. Just hearing, I was the one of the first, I was one of the, um, the the real new recruits at the point we did that, and I just was amazed at what all these these um, semi-choruses and, and, and two or three singers to a part, the, and the extraordinary melismas they were singing. It was like speaking with tongues. I thought it was amazing. And I, I think I've never forgotten that. But also, I was just incredibly lucky because at that time there were other students around with Renaissance instruments 
and making lutes as well, and making and playing lutes. So it was extraordinary for me, but, but really wonderful. And I was largely unfamiliar with piano as, a, as an accompanying instrument. I found it rather loud and daunting. <laughs> <laughs> and then at what point was it that you decided you were going to devote yourself to singing? It just happened to me. Yeah. I was teaching I, in a very good-hearted, comprehensive school just outside Reading with a lovely head who was very imaginative and very musical. And I was also taking part in a classics foundation course for the 12-year-olds, which was um, designed by a, a genius of a teacher who, who was at the school for a couple of years and, and then moved on. Um, and I enjoyed that, but it was while I was doing that, I was also very busy in the evening singing in various choirs, particularly the Taverner Choir with Andrew Parrott. And it was through that, really, that I began to find out who else was doing things, um, what other music was happening. And I just got given offers of of um, some concerts as a little, little tiny solos and things, and then some recording. And that was Anthony Rooley with his Music of Sundry Kinds anthology. He Four black discs, each one devoted to a different Renaissance country, and it was the domestic music he was trying to show and he was also trying to get the dynamic starting from that of the lute <laughs> that was his idea because he took part in the, in the big sort of circuses of lots and lots of instruments on the platform musical reservata particularly fantastic to come and we, we we came and 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 saw those concerts and were from from oxford and were absolutely thrilled with them but it was a whole lot of instruments on the stage and in the middle two lutes looking very nice but you couldn't hear them at all because of all the other instruments so Anthony Rudy's idea was well let's start with the dynamic of the lute and work outwards this was of course not necessarily what all the singers wanted some of them found it very constricting but it suited me beautifully <laughs> <laughs> so he pulled me into that and I was also very opinionated about texts and things we started with four-part Airs and 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 then pretty soon after that John Dowland, so that's it. Just sort of happened naturally, and my lovely headmaster, of uh, beginning of my third year, I said I've got a problem. I've been offered about three days of recording work during school term. I didn't know what to do. He said, "Well, it's so exciting. Take unpaid leave and do it," which was very nice of him. And then by the next year, it had gone so well in in the spare time, as it were, that I negotiated part-time. And again, I was really lucky because I was allowed to do Monday to Wednesday and then be somebody else from Thursday to Sunday, which is rare. I mean, part-time is usually going up and down the road <laughs> several times in the week. Yeah. Um, so I was very lucky all the way through. And after a year of that, things have really developed so nicely. I thought, well, I'll see how this goes. I could go back to teaching if it, if it fails. And I have gone back to teaching now, but not Latin and Greek, <laughs> or Greek myths it was in Roman Britain. <laughs> yeah. Now, you were present at the, this tremendous upswing of interest in early music that really was just gathering pace and also coincided with the, the, the start of a real boom in the recording industry. I was extremely lucky in every way there, yes, because the average soprano wasn't interested in making noises to fit this this mold anyway they really were heading for something healthy and loud and strong and you know and there was a real belief that to express passion you had to have lots of vibrato 
think it's that that belief sort of a little bit become has become um, let's say refined, <laughs> nuanced now. Mm-hmm. I mean, but is fine in its place. But I was aware from from the early stage that vibrato was something that happened as a decoration. It wasn't the body of the note. I wasn't a vibrato singer, probably never really, but it it would always be what happens once you've got into the note with with a real clarity because you need that for the dissonances and the resolutions and the suspensions and all these wonderful things that happen in Renaissance music. You have to have that clarity. Um, But then um, as those singers became more um, confident and keen to be dramatic and be as expressive as the Greek tragedians, you know, I mean, that whole business of the start of opera, it did come from polyphonic singers really saying well I'll have a go now (laughs) but they still knew that scale of performance it was still based on speech and um, Anthony Rulli always used to say we shouldn't forget that with Orfeo which is not quite the first opera but very nearly at its premiere almost certainly there were more people on the stage than the audience it was in the Hall of Mirrors in in Mantova and very fine space but not a massive opera house because the essence of opera is interaction between people and that can happen on a very small scale and the idea of embodying texts and bringing in gestures and using your whole body much more that's putting opera back into song if you like and you know I'm I'm not ashamed of that at all Mm. Um, I'm wondering what the atmosphere was like for you it must be an incredibly exciting time to be surrounded by all this possibility and all these other inspiring people who were kind of cross-fertilising yes, in a way. Yes, it, it really was. And, and we were extraordinarily lucky, as you say, with the recording companies because they they had they felt they had the freedom to experiment and try new things, both here and um, in Germany. In fact, with the Consort of Music in particular, Klaus Neumann of Westdeutscher Rundfunk, he, he, he was a bit of an Anglophile anyway. He came over to York and saw all sorts of early music things going on at the beginning of the York Festival and liked it and invited everybody back to Cologne. It wasn't too difficult to get there and you could stand on their platform and deliver things and they would record and play it to their subscribers. And he, again, was he would just say to, to the people he liked, so they were, what do you want to try next? Um, and it really was open season. And, and I remember hearing the calculation with with Decker with Wazulia if you could sell 4,000 copies of, of a record that'd be okay so that that was how it felt at the beginning it could be small relatively small and um, as long as it lived within that scale it was very satisfying then of course certain things happened like Academy of Ancient Music um, recording Mozart and suddenly the sales rocketed <laughs> and then the accountants came along and said well we're not really interested in 4,000 anymore we'd rather sell 100 <laughs> so it was that was I think that was what started to change the feeling but you still have very small companies too like Hyperion Ted Perry who was a huge music lover and very quixotic and if he liked a piece of music he'd say come and record it and the first um, one I was aware of that he liked, or maybe the second actually, was Hildegard of Bingen, which was Christopher Page just making a radio program for Radio Three. Ted heard it, said, "I want that," and within ten days it was recorded. Wow! 
and then sold half a million or something. Oh, that's um, amazing. Yes, I mean, it, it's you never knew really what what was going to come from from these things. But the great thing about Hyperion was that Ted did that, but it didn't stop him doing other things. It didn't, and he he never deleted stuff. He he always kept it as long as he could, um, even if it was small numbers. But of course, it's completely different now. Now it's all online, and people download tracks. And I hope hope it'll survive. <laughs> I know one one of my very favourite record companies, Bis in Sweden. They they are absolutely glorious, and the sound they get is incredible. And they're wonderful people. Complaining bitterly that Spotify started in Sweden, but actually the money only goes to a small number of record companies, and and not. At the, at the point he was um, saying this, not to Bis. It didn't, didn't matter if you'd made the record. You, you, if you, you didn't fit that groove. You didn't get it. I hope that's not true anymore, but it's, it's, when things get so very big, it, it's sometimes difficult to, to work out how to, how to coexist with it. Yeah, well, we've certainly seen a seismic change in the whole record industry mm. and the whole copyright um, issue as well yes it's, it's a yes. massive thing now yes um i wonder how all of this this technology this what we would have considered back then as unbelievably futuristic and impossible yes probably. quite <laughs> but i wonder how you feel the early music world has has changed today Look, looking back do you are you surprised by things that are happening now do, do you think there's a lot further for it to go I think it's, I think it's all rather good actually. There's lots of very interesting things happening. Vocal consorts for a start. I mean, I've I, I bang on very uh, annoyingly perhaps at, about how important it is to realise the quality of this music in the 16th century, because the best composers in the known world, that's where the money was for them. So they wrote amazing music, um, and it is incredible stuff. And it takes some some staging. You have to have the right number of voices and everything else. And when we, with the Consort of Music, alongside Taverner Consort, Hilliard Consort, a handful of others in England, one or two in Germany, seven or eight really serious vocal consorts in the world, maybe. Now you've got about 25 in each country, and, and they're really, they're very um, eager, and, and, and they've, they, they've got the bug just the same as we, we did. And I, I love to see that. I think it's very exciting. Mm. And maybe the... The fact that the whole social media thing, they that the young people know how to do it, and it's the way, the only way they're going to sell themselves, really. But at least you can get a certain number, small number. That that's where early music does score. You can get a small number of people together, and as long as you choose your acoustics carefully, um, you you can really make a very effective video or whatever, and 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 start building your audience. But it's something I'm kind of shamefully glad I'm kind of too old to have to do myself. <laughs> so you taught a lot at the summer school and and I think at Guildhall as well. Yes, Guildhall. I'm 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 kind of still surprised to be there, but I enjoy it. I've been doing two days a term, six days a year for for decades. <laughs> I just go in and I call myself not a teacher but a tweaker. A tweaker. Yeah. Well, teachers they're there every week. They're really looking after the the young student, they are helping them in every way, nurturing them, repertoire, building the, the breath and all these things that you have to do. And I'm a little bit of a cheat because I kind of need that to be more or less right. And then when they come along and they bring me a piece, 
I pass on things that help me and I just add ideas really very and I call them tweaks and very small things like lean on this consonant shape that vowel it sounds very very nitpicking and it is but what happens when you make those small changes is that you find that you have enough breath to get to the end of the line it's efficiency actually but it's also that that's one side of it and the other side of it of course is to is to take it into your body and and and, and let your whole body express it um and i'm a I, I'm always on dangerous ground here because I'm quite unhappy to see mature, fairly mature singers who've been at music college five or six years still standing dutifully with their hands hanging limply down when I want their hands to be helping. I want them to be expressing things. But I know I'm. this is an awkward thing because there is a very strong tradition of delivering superbly trained singers who can do exactly what the... The regisseur, the, the the producer, will want from them on the opera stage. I even some students told me not so long ago that the head of opera said, "Whatever you do in in auditions, don't act, because <laughs> you know that's it's bound to be wrong. Whatever they want, to try to do, and they must be therefore the perfect material for the producer to work on." Well, I, c- I can understand that up to a point, but I I think that it'd be even better. If someone had, as far as they could, taken the song into themselves, really embodied it and felt it very strongly, then the gestures, whatever gestures they find, would be likely to be convincing. And if they're not, at that point, I want the producer to say, well, you know, that's a good idea you've got, but why don't you just extend this? Or, I don't know, it's just the whole idea that you've got to produce blank slates is, to me, a, a bit sad, I must say. Um, Well, Emma, thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, We are all looking forward enormously to this concert. I understand tickets may be in slightly short supply, but uh, it's always worth checking back for returns. Yes, especially um, in February. Especially in February. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much and have a wonderful evening. Thank you very much, Jessica.